Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. And whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Father, thank you for your word. Challenge our hearts. Draw us near to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Let me uh, put a disclaimer out there this morning. I've had at least two people come to me in the last few weeks said, who in the church is drinking? <laughs> Surely somebody is. Well, if they are, I don't know anything about it. Don't tell me. <laughs> Amen. I, I, I believe you ought to preach the message before the horse gets out of the barn. Okay. So, no, I don't have anybody particularly in mind. And if it's you, quit. <laughs> Amen. So, just, just so you know. Uh, but, you know, it's been an interesting study for me. And I mentioned this last week, uh, the, the debate will go on until Jesus comes. And then when we get to heaven, everybody say, you know what, Brother Rollin, you were right. Uh, I'm not sure about that either. But the good thing is that we, we can at least have a, a biblical viewpoint. And that's what I'd like for you to make your, uh, your decision today as well. But no, I haven't got anybody in mind, so you can rest that he is there. Uh, anyway. But you know, the Bible is very clear about that. Wine does seem attractive. Uh, the Bible talks about that. Uh, being uh, sparkling and smooth. It does kind of uh, soothe the senses of sight and taste. But the problem is, it can be as deadly as a snake bite. Now, we've come a long way uh, in this series so far. And uh, as even Jess came this morning, Dad, four weeks? I said, no, this is five. <laughs> you know, so I'm not sure we'll finish today or not. But I think there's some things we need to learn about what the Bible speaks about when the Bible speaks about wine. We've covered, like I said, a lot of ground in both <clears throat> Old and New Testament, warn of the dangers of alcohol, especially when it comes to drunkenness. And, of course, you know, Proverbs are very clear about that. We've got a few more verses later on in our message this morning from Proverbs uh, about drunkenness. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, we see another clear command from the Scriptures. And Paul wrote this, and be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with uh, the Spirit. So again, that being said, and with what we preached so far, and the, look at the Scriptures even the last several weeks, uh, we would all agree, or we should agree, that drunkenness is condemned in the Scripture, and drunkenness is a sin. So again, what's wrong then? I'm not going to get drunk. What's wrong with an occasional drink as long as I don't overdo it? Now, it's interesting. Uh, I was, I've been doing a lot of reading on this, and I'm not sure how, I hold, how old this book is, uh, but it's a book on uh, missionary church planters here in America. And this book is probably several years old, and I don't even know the author's name. But in that book, he makes a statement which really surprised me. He said one of the greatest problems among missionaries in America today, the pastors, is drunkenness. That shocked me. That shocked me. Now again, uh, over the last few years, there's been, I know of at least one, probably more, well-known pastors who have stood up and apologized for all the years, they were abstinent, abstained from alcohol. And how they were glad now, they started drinking. How sad is that? 
What a testimony for the church of the living God. And so that's one of the reasons I'm spending time on this, to help educate ourselves a little bit better. And again, like I said, I realize there will be a debate till Jesus comes about the issue of drinking. Now, we've also talked about this quite a bit, uh, whether you're talking about wine in the New Testament or wine in the Old Testament. Uh, it's talking about it could be unfermented juice or it could be fermented intoxicating wine. And again, you find examples of both throughout the Word of God. And we began with this a week or so ago. And what's interesting is, uh, first of all, it doesn't matter who you are, if you want to do something bad enough, you'll find a verse that says, okay. Amen. Okay, you will. And we're all guilty of that. Come on. Not just on alcohol, a lot of other things. But one of the uh, arguments they would use, and I'm talking about among Christians, uh, they would use that it's okay to drink alcohol, is they would say, you know what? Jesus drank wine at the Last Supper. Again, Luke chapter 22, verse 18. Uh, Jesus said, I say unto you, I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. Now, we've, we've spent already a lot of time on this part, uh, so I don't want to go uh, in a lot of detail, but I do want to summarize some things that I think are, are very, very important. When we ask the question, did Jesus drink wine, fermented wine? I remember, wine in the same word could either be fermented, you know, alcoholic wine, or non-fermented. So you had, how, you know, how do you know? Did he drink alcoholic wine or did he not at Passover meal? Well, a couple of things from the Word of God. These are very clear. And we're not going to read the verses again. I got them in our reference. But number one, during Passover week, you were not allowed to have any kind of leaven or any kind of yeast in your house anywhere. Okay? Exodus 12, 19, Exodus 13, 7. Read it for yourself later on. A second thing that I want you to know, facts. The priests were never allowed to approach God if they were drinking intoxicating drinks. They simply were not allowed to do that. Now, that being said, I want to make a couple of observations. Number one, whether it's leaven or any kind of fermentation, it symbolized corruption and sin. And I realize on that first exodus, uh, one of the reasons they didn't use leaven, they didn't have time for the bread to rise. But also, the Bible was clear, God said it represents sin. Get it out of your house. So it represented sin and corruption. Another observation. Since the bread could not be leavened, why would the wine be fermented? Does that make sense or not? Is that an honest question? You can't have leavened bread. Why would you be allowed to have fermented wine during Passover? Remember, no leaven of any kind in your house anywhere during the entire week of celebration. And the third thing, we know, again, Bible fact, priests were not allowed to drink wine or anything strong and draw near to God in worship. They couldn't do it. Jesus Christ is our high priest. Why would he drink intoxicating drink as he came to Passover? Matthew chapter 26, verse 26 through 29. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, break it, gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks 
gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We cannot miss the fact. And by the way, if you're here, anytime we have communion, I almost always read this passage from Matthew. He's not the only one who writes about it. There are others. But I prefer, I just like how he puts it. But without a doubt, we have to understand what Jesus is doing here. He's now taking time to explain about what is about to happen. About what is going to happen. Now remember, every once in a while, we have communion. And we put it in the bullet. We're going to celebrate communion. Now, we don't have any specific time. We try to do it at least once a quarter, uh, at special day, other holidays as well. But again, we know we're gathered. We're going to have the bread and the cup, and we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. But how many know that night, they didn't get together and say, we're going to have communion? Isn't that true? They never heard of communion. They never heard of the Lord's table. They were gathered together not to celebrate communion, but to celebrate the Passover meal. Now remember, there was no leaven allowed, no fermentation allowed, anything in your house. Now at the Passover meal, now bear with me, there were normally four cups. And most theologians believe that when Jesus began to introduce this new communion thing we call it today, was probably around the third Now remember, this meal, this Passover meal, was organized around drinking four cups of red wine, symbolizing a four-part promise of redemption we find in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 and 7. God says, Moses, therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. Somebody say amen. I am the Lord. Look at the promises. I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So they had four cups, and each cup represents something very important of the promise of God. The first cup represents the fact that God said, I will bring you out of Egypt. Guess what he did? He brought them out. And every time they drank that cup, they remembered that. The second cup was, I will rescue you from your bondage. And guess what he did? He rescued them. And the second cup represented that time God delivered us, not just bring us out, He delivered us from bondage. But the third cup, God said, I will redeem you. How many know this didn't happen until Jesus came? I will redeem you. Now, what's interesting, this night, for the first time that that we're aware of, Jesus did not drink the fourth cup. The redemption was about to take place. 
But he told them, I won't drink it anymore. Till when? Till we're in heaven. Because that fourth cup symbolized the fact that you are my people and I will be your God. And how many know that won't come true till when? Till we get to heaven. So understand, four cups. And the third cup was redemption. So, I happen to have a cup here. Thank you, Cooper. We had a little trouble. Uh, Jason always takes care of getting it ready. And I, I had no idea where he kept it. But I should have known he couldn't leave without it. It might ferment. I couldn't take that chance, right? And so, Cooper, thank you for not giving up on me. I, I had no idea what it was at. And as usual, Cooper, I apologize. I thought about it earlier, but I didn't tell him until service began. So it's interesting. Jesus took that, the Bible says he took that unleavened bread. And no, Rick, I'm not going to share it with you. That unleavened bread. And he said to them, Take, eat. This is my body. I want to suggest to you this morning that that bread is not literally his body. Even then, he was standing right there before them. It was a symbol of his perfect body. Then the Bible says, He took that cup. He blessed it, of course. And he said, this cup is my blood. My blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And he says, drink you, all of it. Thank you. Now again, wasn't literally his blood. Wasn't literally his body. But the bread was a symbol of that body that would be broken. And today it's a symbol of the body that was broken. The cup was a symbol of the blood that was shed, would have been shed, and now it's a symbol of the blood that was shed. So remember what I said, first of all, I think a couple of weeks ago. The value of any symbol is determined by its capacity to conceptualize a spiritual reality. Let that sink in. How many know without his body being broken, his blood being shed, we can never be saved? So it's a symbol of a spiritual reality. So, so what is the spiritual reality here? Our redemption can only be through the perfect Lamb of God. Perfect Lamb of God. You know the story of the Old Testament had to be a perfect Lamb. Well, it wasn't ever perfect, but at least as well as could be, no physical blemish. 
But in Christ, he was perfect. His blood was precious. His blood was incorruptible. And I want you to realize, just as the bread represented the perfect body, it couldn't have any leaven in it. I would say today, I would argue, the best way to represent his blood would have been unfermented juice. Think about that. My argument is it would be inconsistent with the goal of a spiritual requirement of the Lord's Supper to use anything, whether it be the bread or the juice, anything that was a symbol of evil. Leaven and fermentation were both symbols of evil. So I would submit to you an argument for not being permitted. The second argument, we touched on this last week as well. Let's go to John chapter 2 again. We'll begin in verse 3. We'll skip down into verse 6 through 10, where Jesus turns the water into wine. Okay, okay, I want to drink. Okay, it must be okay. Jesus drank wine, fermented wine, at the Last Supper. I don't think you can prove that. You might say, well, preacher, you can't prove he didn't. Well, maybe not. But I think I've shared some good observations and some good scriptures on why he probably did not. So what about this water turning to wine? Let's go read it again. John 2, look at verse 3. When they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them to the brim. Make note of that. And he said to them, draw some out now, take it to the master of the feast. And they took it <clears throat> when the master of peace had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from. But the servants who had drawn the water knew the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, there you go, preacher, they were drunk. Well, maybe they were, maybe they weren't. Then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. Now, again, we're going to highlight some things here. Question, did Jesus turn water into wine? Yes, he did. Was it fermented? My argument is today, I don't think so. Others would say it was. I would say not. I realize the Bible is silent on this point. And again, let me give you some principles I gave last week. Uh, you can only determine that by the circumstances associated with it. That would, the occasion, of course, was a wedding. The material was water. Now remember, he had them fill it where? To the brim. So nobody could say, well, they added something to it. It wasn't a miracle, but now he filled it to the brim. With water, the same thing that God uses from the clouds that the vine takes up and produces grapes with and turns to juice. And the person making the wine was Jesus Christ, okay? And again, he's the one who created all things. He's the one who ordained the law that the vine would take up his water and produce grapes, which indeed would then produce juice from the grapes and the water Jesus provided. So Jesus 
uh, is there. Mary is there, his mother. The town is Canaan, probably about nine miles from Nazareth. That's where Jesus and Mary uh, lived for many, many years. We assume by now Joseph is dead. But nonetheless, uh, the, the family provided uh, wine, and they ran out of wine. Now remember, this was not just an hour-long wedding. A lot of weddings lasted up to a week, and the whole town would come. So being embarrassed but to, to run out of wine. Now the Bible says there were six water pots there, and they had water in them. They weren't all full, but they weren't for drinking. They were for purification. And it was common to have that at your home. You had something for purification, especially for the Jews. And they had more than just one because this was a, a, a whole town festivity. And again, they were want to be purified. So he had them filled with water. They did that. And he gave the command to draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. The maitre d'. Let him taste it. And he said, wow, this is the best wine I have ever tasted. That's my paraphrase. He called it what? Good wine. Now, I mentioned this several weeks ago. We've got to compare apples with apples. So when the wine ran out. Now, we've also already discussed this several weeks ago. Wine was a common drink in the ancient world. They made it from all kinds of fruit. Mainly grape, grape, but they made it from all kinds of fruit. And because there was no refrigeration, Cooper, no freezer to put it in, <laughs> it was subject to fermentation. And we have to understand that it produced alcohol. But also understand the water at that day was not purified. Thank God for pure water. Amen? The water that day was not purified. So to quench your thirst with water was dangerous. It was dangerous. But also... To quench your thirst with fermented wine was dangerous as well because it could cause drunkenness. So how did they deal with it? You can't drink the water. It'll make you sick. You can't drink the wine. It'll get you drunk. You don't want to be sick and you don't want drunkenness. It's drunkenness is sin. Not much of a choice. What do you do? Now let's compare apples with apples. The wine we have today is far different than the wine they had in that day and time. Now hear me. Now remember, this was a big wedding. A lot of people there a whole week. And wine was there as a drink. Couldn't serve them water, make them all sick. But would you serve them all alcoholic wine? Get them all drunk? Is that what you want to? Now think about that for a minute. Let us think in. So they had a solution in that day. You couldn't drink pure water because it'd make you sick. It really would. And so what they would do, they would dilute the wine. Because if you didn't, it'd make you drunk. Because you had to have wine, you had to drink something to stay hydrated. And you couldn't drink the water, you'd get sick. And so what they would do, they would take the wine and they would dilute it. 
from either one part wine to three points, three parts water, or one point wine to ten points, ten parts water. So they would use the wine to purify the water, so it wouldn't make you sick. And they would take the wine and they would dilute it with water, so it wouldn't make you drunk. So, in most cases, the wine of that day is not the same of the wine today. The wine today has a much greater alcoholic content than it did then. But please understand the reason they did that. So I would suggest to you, because of the fact they diluted wine, that was common, couldn't drink the water, it'd make you sick, add a little wine to it, it'd purify it, and it's known to do that. Now, by the way, scientists know it's not the alcohol that purifies water. Because they found out, and they used to do it even in the old ancient days, they didn't know, it, didn't know exactly why, they would boil the wine and make a paste out of it. But once you boil it, guess what happens to all the alcohol? It goes out. But scientists say it wasn't the alcohol, it's the other things in that paste that purify water. God knows what he's doing. Amen. So understand that. I've done a lot of reading on this, by the way. I hope you can at least catch up a little bit what I'm trying to say here today. So I think it's safe to say they were following normal procedures. Now, by by the way, number one, you got a wedding going that long, that many people there, I guess what you want to make that wine do? Last a long time. And you water it down. That was natural to do that day. And they ran out. So how do we know? How do we know if you're referring to grape juice? intoxicating wine. Now again, the context of what you read the word in will help you determine that. Is it alcohol or not alcoholic? Verse 2, John. I'm sorry, verse 10, John 2. This is the Mater D. He says unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. But when men have well drunk, then that which is worse but thou hast kept the good wine until now. There it is, preacher. You are wrong. The Bible says they were well drunk. Does it really? <laughs> now remember the context, the immediate context of what's going on here. The guests at the marriage seat of Cana were able to tell the difference. They could discern the quality of the drink that Jesus Christ had made. They could, they could tell it was different from what they had. Is that what it said? Yeah. Now, by the way, you know I'm not a Greek scholar, not even close, but I do have a Greek concordance. And I look at that term, well drunk. And here's what this Greek concordance says it can mean. It can mean to drink to intoxication. It can mean to get drunk. Or it can simply mean to drink well. That didn't help me none. I wish I hadn't said the first two, but it did. Okay, so I've got to be honest. It can mean to get drunk. Now, so we know whatever was served, they drank a lot of it. Okay? 
And if what they drank was intoxicating, and they drank a lot of it, guess what? They'd be smashed. Amen? And if they were smashed, do you think they could have told the difference between the two? Probably not. And they wouldn't have cared either. And those who will try to take that and say, well, right there it is. Jesus turned the water into wine, so he must be condoning social drinking uh, because they were they well drunk. And so that's the idea that uh, Christ condones it. But if they were well drunk, intoxicated, would they have had such keen discernment? But the problem is, if they were well drunk, they could not distinguish. But the governor of the feast, the Bible says, tells the bridegroom, they can tell the difference. You have saved the best for last. So I would suggest that probably the good wine was unpermitted wine. Because everything Jesus makes is what? It's good. It is good. Now let's think for a moment the logical conclusion of those who would or the logical consequences of those who would take that verse and say that Jesus says it's okay to drink socially. It's okay to consume alcoholic beverages. And they would say, well, Jesus did it. He drank it at the Lord's Supper. He produced alcoholic wine. And so, therefore, it must be morally right for a person to drink it. Now, remember, the context means a lot. Now, how many know mankind has always had a proclivity to take what God makes good and turn it into something bad? What God makes something joyful for human life for human ex- and turn it into something horrible. That's with anything, and I understand that. And, <clears throat> you know, I wouldn't have any any doubt in thinking that maybe some of them there were drunk. But now think about this. Think about this. If Jesus produced alcoholic wine, then it must be morally right for a person to drink it. But the problem is, that kind of thinking goes too far. Are you ready, Jeremy? Here's my verse. He called me about last week. Luke chapter 17, verse 1 and 2. Then said he to the disciples, It is impossible that offenses will come. But woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and and cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Brother Dan, I don't know if you remember years ago when we first met, uh, you shared a story with me. Uh, you were passing a shirt at that time, and somebody didn't like the color shirt you wore. Is that fair? And so it offended them. And Dan, since I've come to know he's that kind of person, he doesn't want to offend anybody. I, I you know, I don't particularly agree with her, but I, that, that's, but this is not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about 
somebody, causing somebody to stumble where they fall. Okay? So if what they claim is true, that Jesus produced alcoholic wine, then not only would it be morally right to drink it, it would be morally right to produce it, sell it, distribute it, and make a living to do that. But understand something, folks. If, in fact, they were all drunk, and Jesus produced more alcohol, what are they going to do? Get more drunk. And that would cause someone to stumble. Because everybody agrees, getting drunk is what? It's a sin. It is a sin. So if that's true, and you give it more wine, then it must be okay to cause someone to stumble. Now, I want to say that's a foolish argument because the bottom line is this, there's no foundation for that. Now, remember, the Bible clearly condemns any kind of drunkenness, but it also pronounces a woe. Hear me well. A woe on anyone who gives their neighbor strong drink. Habakkuk 2, verse 15. The Bible says, Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that putteth a bottle to him, and maketh him drunken also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. What's Habakkuk saying there? He is telling us, he's rebuking the sin of contributing to drunkenness. Amen? If you give someone something that causes them to sin, woe on you. I know. Maybe Jesus didn't know that verse. You know he did. You know he did. In fact, I would suggest today that Jesus knew better than anybody. That teaching. He also knew the context of the Old Testament. And so we have to be honest here, and we have to ask, I think, an honest, true question, or sincere question, and do it in an honest way. Would Jesus, would he knowingly violate those scriptures just to satisfy that festive crowd? Help me out here. There's no way. He would not out there to satisfy them. And if we are honest with ourselves, if we're honest with the Word of God, we know that Jesus Christ would never, He could never do anything the Spirit of God had already pronounced as a woe. Now remember, if you want to say they were drunk, that's up to you. But how can you honestly say that Jesus would contribute to making them more drunk? I think that's dangerous ground. So if He did supply, they would say, Wine to the wedding guest, fermented wine. Then he added to their intoxication. But not only did he contribute to it, his actions condoned what they were doing, and his actions encouraged them to do more. Would Jesus do that? I seriously doubt that he would have done that. Can you imagine? A woe being pronounced on our Savior? Can you imagine our Savior doing anything sinful? We know he didn't. He was a perfect man. That's 
why I believe he turned that water into non-alcoholic wine. Proverbs 23, 31. Look not upon the wine when it is red, when it gives its color and cup, when it moves itself aright. Again, it's very tempting, very tantalizing to the senses of sight and sound. And if Jesus had turned it into wine, fermented wine, he would have caused others to look upon it, to be tempted by it. And how many know that Jesus never tempts anybody to do evil? Amen. But if it was fermented wine, he was tempting them. See, I, I think Jesus knew the Bible. I think he knew the wisdom of sobriety. And I can't for a minute convince myself that he would tempt others with some type of intoxicating drink. Our text this morning, Proverbs 21, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever deceived thereby is not wise. I would submit to you this morning that Jesus could not have caused or even encouraged someone to become drunk and remain sinless. And we know he was sinless. For him to do something something like that would be inconsistent with why he was here on earth. His purpose is to prevent man from sin. His purpose is to deliver us from our sin. His blood was shed that our sin might be forgiven. And his purpose is to lead us to a point, not to where we will sin, but to where we won't sin. And that's why I, for one, believe that to say that Jesus Christ produced alcoholic wine is problematic. I believe it's more consistent to believe what the Bible says about drunkenness and conclude that he could not have, or would not, he could do anything, would not have produced alcoholic wine. Five weeks. But we're living in a world that's uneducated about this topic. And you'll come across with people. Now, am I saying if you drink a, a cup of wine or beer, it's going to send you to hell? No, I'm not. The only thing I'm going to send you to hell if you don't trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. But he came to this world not to encourage us to sin, but to forgive our sins and to deliver us out of those sins. And certainly wants us to live lives that are different from all world. Let's stand together. Lord willing, next week, we're not done yet. If it wasn't permitted wine, the next question is, what then was the miracle of the wedding feast in Canaan? Father, thank you for your word. And Father, my point today, my desire is not to stir the debate, but God, to get some reasonable, biblical-based observations. But more than anything else, my desire is for people to run to the giver of life, and that's Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
You lived a sinless life because you were the perfect Lamb of God. Your blood was shed that we might have forgiveness of our sins. And I pray most of all, Lord, in spite of our differences of opinion about certain things in the Scripture, we can agree on this. Jesus came to seek and save those who were lost. And I pray especially today for those that may be listening online today that don't know Jesus Christ, that today would be the day they come to know you. I pray for your children today, for all of us, God, that we would draw near to you. And Lord, let us draw a line in the sand, much like Daniel did, and determine not to be defiled with the things of this world. Father, I pray you'll speak to our hearts. We'll let you do that today. Maybe we comfort the brokenhearted and draw us near to you. I pray it all in the precious name of my wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ, my Lord. Amen and amen. Brother Rick, whenever you're ready.